If you'd make your way to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We call it uh, the dramatic pause. It's that moment of silence that heightens awareness just before an important introductory or concluding expression. If you have heard, I hope that you have, Handel's Messiah, and you've heard that great hallelujah chorus. You can bring yourself to it, play it back in your mind. It comes to the end, and there is that driving hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then that dramatic pause. The choir goes silent. If anybody's with the music, they are holding their breath and waiting for that last hallelujah. Or it might be an introductory expression. I think of the uh, presidential speech. There's the legislators and the dignitaries and invited guests and everybody there talking. The air is charged with anticipation. And then that herald steps at the back of the assembly, those double doors, and comes out. There's this dramatic pause, this silence. And then it is announced, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. As we come to Luke chapter 1 and now to verse 5 of our study through this book, we are at the tail end of a divinely orchestrated dramatic pause. It has heightened awareness for what serves as both a grand conclusion and the most important introductory statement of history. Like Handel's energetic hallelujah chorus, the Old Testament prophets have been saying repeatedly, hallelujah, hallelujah, or better, he is coming, he is coming, he is coming. And then 400 years of silence. No prophetic word. God is silent. No revelation. No communication between the supernatural and the natural realms. But finally, in the revelatory darkness, there is a flutter of activity in the throne room of heaven. The divine throne room is charged with a sense of mission. Preparations are made in the darkness for the coming of the dawn. Gabriel is dispatched to earth with a word from God to man in the dark night of revelatory silence. The great dramatic pause gives way to a concluding prophetic announcement which serves as a grand introduction all at once. The Messiah is at hand. Heaven's door is about to swing open. The angelic herald of this grand introduction is dispatched from God's throne to the eventual parents of the earthly herald. As providence would have it, these would-be parents we find in Luke chapter 1 are experiencing their own dramatic pause. It is a time of personal darkness. A darkness that God will sovereignly use to announce the dawn of Messiah's incarnation. We meet Zechariah and Elizabeth in this setting They are aware of the dramatic pause of revelatory silence. On the other hand, they are just going about their daily business with probably no sense that that dramatic pause is about to end. And certainly, absolutely no sense that they are going to be part of the equation. A dramatic part. Verse 5, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Herod ruled as king of Judea from 37 to 4 B.C., and we are at the tail end of his reign here. Under Herod's jurisdiction was an Aaronic priest by the name of Zechariah. We're introduced to him here. He's from the hill country of Judea, we learn elsewhere. The priests of Israel were, by law, descendants of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. The priests were organized according to 24 divisions, and that's the reference here to Abijah. There are 24 divisions by family descent, and they were uh, these divisions consisting of perhaps 700 to 800 priests each. Now, That would mean then, and it does mean as we look at the statistics of that day, that there were about 18,000 priests in Israel. Zechariah is one of those 18,000. 
Now, the Mosaic law required priests to marry an Israelite and to marry a virgin, Leviticus 21 and verse 14. And in the thinking of that day, to marry such a woman from among Aaron's offspring was considered a special blessing. So what a joyous day it must have been when Zechariah married Elizabeth, both children of Aaron, descendants of this priestly line. And the joy did not stop on the wedding day, for we read in verse 6, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. This was a couple who knew the blessing of God. They knew the wisdom of God. They reaped the joyous fruit of following God's path of moral wisdom in this world. They were not sinless, obviously, but they were far... As far as conformity to the Mosaic law, they were blameless. They were living righteously before God, and they enjoyed the fruits of that righteous living together as husband and wife through many years. Walking in obedience to Israel's covenant with God, which to an ancient Jew would shroud the next verse in a veil of shocking dissonance. For we read in verse 7, they had no children. Because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well along in years. In ancient Israel, these words are about as tragic as can be imagined. It was a woman's duty, dignity, and delight to raise up children. Barren women were considered to be under God's curse often, were often ostracized as a disgrace to society that depended on the younger generation, providing the social formation and foundation for the older Years, the elder generation in their latter years. Now, God didn't think of it that way, of course, but society often did. In fact, the rabbi said that if a married man had no children, it was evidence that God had cut him off and despised him. Under this extreme social pressure, Zechariah and Elizabeth watch as one season turns into a second and then into a third, and on and on the years pass. With the passing of each religious festival, As Zechariah says goodbye to his wife and heads toward Jerusalem, or perhaps she goes with him on some of these journeys, with each passing religious festival, it is a reminder we do not have children. With every birth announcement from within their family clan, this godly couple experienced that awful sensation that the sands of time were draining silently from the hourglass of opportunity. One year gives way to another, and another, and another, and it becomes clear there will be no children. They were constantly reminded that providence had not permitted them to participate in this experience which is so rich and yet so very commonplace. Not for them. Now we notice here, of course, a couple of notes that Elizabeth's infertility was not owing to sin in their lives, was it? Verse 6, they were observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. It had nothing to do with that. And I'd like you to note, secondly, that Elizabeth's infertility was not seen as an excuse for sin on their part. How many times... Over how many years did this righteous couple plead with God for a child, but God never answered? Now, well along in years, they had given up all hope of that, it would appear, but for reasons they could not understand, God had left Elizabeth barren, and yet they kept serving God. There's a sense of faith there, a sense of purpose there, a sense of foresight in their vision. It calls us to question here this morning, does suffering routinely provide us, does it provide you with an excuse for sin, an excuse to reject God? We need to watch this couple very closely. Despite the years of disappointment and suffering, heaven was on the move. And we notice this in the major section now, this transitional section, or we transition into the section at verse 8 of Zechariah's great vision Uh, verses 8 and following through to verse 23, we have Zechariah's vision. First of all, he is chosen by Lot, beginning at verse 8. Let's pick up there. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, 
And he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by Lot. Let me stop there and let's fill in the blanks for us Gentiles who lose contact with this world and maybe have never even thought about it. But each of the 24 divisions of priests would serve for one week at the temple two times a year. So Zechariah would be scheduled essentially once every six months for a week of tour in Jerusalem. And as a priest, he would devote his entire week, every waking hour, essentially, to being a priest. Now, when he went back home, he would have probably had his garden and his uh, crops and perhaps a, a herd of sheep or goats or something, and he would have cared for those things there. But when he was a priest, he was a priest. Now, we find Zechariah in just such a time. He has been brought, he's come to Jerusalem in one of his weekly stints there at the temple. All 18,000 priests were assigned to serve in Jerusalem at the three major festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and Booths. So at least five times per year, Zechariah would journey through the hill country of Judea to Jerusalem to serve as priest, and very possibly he would have gone at other times. The daily sacrificial ritual is the significant context that we need to consider here. God called the Israelites to offer a sacrifice at the beginning of each day and at the end of each sacrificial day. A sacrifice to start it off and a sacrifice to end it. Now, as bookends on either side of those sacrifices was an offering of incense on the altar in the temple. But with this offering, there would be a year-old lamb, there was a flour, olive oil, wine offering that went with it, but one basic sacrifice, and many of the people would line up around and watch and observe as this sacrifice was made at the beginning of the day and then at the end of the ritual day, approximately 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. in the service of the temple. Every day, lots were chosen to see which of these many priests that were assigned in these 24 divisions, some 700 to 1,000, maybe in some divisions a few less, I don't think any division was more than a thousand, but they would, among these priests, who is going to be assigned for what task? And there were very honorable tasks, and it was always then determined by lot. There was no political matter in it then, and lots would be cast to see which task was yours. There was lots that were cast to see who would attend to the altar. It was left smoldering through the night. And some priests had to come in at the dawn and had to get the wood stacked in order and get it roaring again on the blaze for this first initial sacrifice of the day. Then there was a lot that was cast to choose 13 priests to slaughter the lamb. Very ritual-oriented process. All types of maneuverings went on there as the animal was killed and cut up and prepared for offering on the altar. But there was one job, if you were among your 700 priests or so, among the 18,000, there was one job every priest wanted more than anything else. And that was to have that lot cast saying that he would go in and offer incense on the altar. It's a great honor to prepare the altar. It was a great honor to be chosen by lot uh, to prepare the sacrifice, but to offer incense on the altar in the temple was a tremendous privilege. In fact, there were two priests chosen every day of the year by lot. One priest would offer incense to start the religious day, and one would offer incense at the end of the religious day. And if you were chosen for that, you could never do it again. To give all the other priests an opportunity. Many priests never were able to serve in that capacity. And if you did... You were considered a, what they called a fulfilled priest. It was like wearing a badge around and a smile on your face for the rest of your life. You had been there. You had that experience and always were remembered for it. The most coveted assignment was this offering of incense. Well, on this particular occasion, late in his career as a priest, the aged Zechariah is chosen by lot for this very task. Verse Nine. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It's difficult to overestimate the significance of this event in Zechariah's life. This is the climax of his priestly ministry. 
According to custom, Zechariah would have entered the temple with other priests, but would then have been left alone to place the incense on the altar. And as the incense wafted heavenward as a symbol of Israel's prayers, Zechariah would have fallen on his face before the altar and pleaded with God in prayer for Israel's redemption. That was his job. This didn't take very long. They didn't want to linger long in God's presence and to be seen as presumptuous. The question would be, as this priest was left alone, what is he doing in there? Is he looking around? Is he sneaking around somehow and just do, taking this as a personal experience? He would go in, he would pray fairly, a fairly short prayer, put the incense on the altar, and as that would ascend, uh, then he would walk away and come back out into the outer court. And we note in verse 10 that when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Israelite men would stand behind a rail, dividing the court of Israel from the court of the priests, and the priest who served in the temple would then emerge and stand at the top of the steps to offer a blessing on those assembled. Now, we've got to get a little bit of a picture of this here. I've lost my laser pen somewhere, but I, uh, somebody's got a laser pen in their pocket. Throw it at me, but um, I thought it, it's usually up in my pulpit here, and I'm missing it somewhere. Yeah, it might be there, John. It should. There's a little case, a little black case. But if I, I get you to look up here, um, this is. Thank you. This is a very <coughs> obviously rough drawing here, but. Uh, what took place then with, this is actually, a, um, would represent the tabernacle more accurately, but just to get the picture, um, Zechariah would walk in, it was the altar that was here where that first daily sacrifice was just about to be offered, and he would walk into the holy place. Now no priest could even come, no one but a priest could even come into this court, ever. But you had to be chosen by lot to enter into the holy place where there was the candelabra on, the, on his left, and as he walked into that area, there would be on the right the table of showbread, and there was ahead of him the altar of incense. Now think of this elderly gentleman has steeped himself in this ritual all of his life, and here he is walking into this sanctuary. For the first time, perhaps, there were others who would go in there to do other things, but very few were chosen by lot to do that as well, to attend to the candlestick and the showbread. Perhaps his first time in, but certainly his first time to walk before this great altar of incense, pictured here by number five, and uh, remembering into the most holy place only one priest once per year would enter into there on the Day of Atonement. This is not the Day of Atonement. This is apparently just his regular uh, day of assignment, and it's a regular religious day. We don't really know that there's anything significant to the day, but he walks in and stands here before this altar. Now, let me give you just a little bitter picture of this, if I can. Um, we could have that first slide there, and uh, maybe get the lights here, too. Uh, we're going to see if we can get this to work a little bit. But this is a model, uh, model of the uh, temple area. And Zechariah, I want to just get a sense of the, it's impossible for us really, but a sense of the awe and the privilege of this opportunity. Here is the, this is a courtyard, uh, the court of the priests. Only priests would be permitted in this courtyard, and then uh, through the doors into the uh, temple itself. And this is uh, the section where he would have walked in and approach the altar of incense. Now, let's see the second slide there. I think that might show that better. Here we have a better uh, depiction of this court. This is the court of the priests. Only the priests are permitted in here to um, participate in the ritual. You see the steps, the many steps leading up to the front of the uh, tabernacle. I'm getting this confused here, aren't I? I'm lost. Here we go. There's the tabernacle there, or the temple, as he would walk in there. But there is a uh, a place, a section off that is sectioned off here to, uh, for only priests to come. And right here you see a rail. This rail, if that's possible to see that, there's a rail there and you see some people standing behind. The priest would emerge out of here and stand on these steps after offering the incense 
and would pronounce a blessing on the Israelite men. This was called the court of Israel, and only men were permitted in here. But they would stand behind this rail, and there would be a blessing that was pronounced upon the men who were standing there. So as Zechariah goes into the temple, this is a place that is uh, one of the most beautiful buildings that has ever been built on the face of the earth to our time, but certainly at this time. He goes in with all of the ritual that's involved in this great responsibility that is on his shoulders, and he enters into the, uh, the temple. Do we have another slide? All right, here's, here's a top view. So right here you see that rail and the uh, court of, of the, of the uh, Israelites and the approach then to the tabernacle where there was uh, right here. Remember the... the uh, Temple. I said the tabernacle. Remember the picture that I showed you here. Here we see the laver on the outside, and the altar is uh, hidden by this roof. But it would be right off to the side here, where that lamb would be offered. And here were the racks that would uh, hang the sacrifices when there were many sacrifices. So that all, that sacrifice is about to be offered here. But Zechariah makes his way, and you just get a little bit of the sense of the pageantry and the ritual that went into this. As he walks, ascends these steps, and works his way into this temple and approaches the altar of incense. My my head is in Hebrews right now. I just about reduce you to tears when you think that we have access into the throne room of God. It's a different sermon. But that's where Zechariah goes. He goes with all of this ritual surrounding him and this, this sense of these hundreds of priests and thousands of worshipers around watching and, and observing this. What a tremendous privilege this was for him. Now, as he is in there offering incense, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So if you can go back to that previous picture, he is standing somewhere in the corner of this inner sanctum where with the altar in front of uh, Zechariah and the candlestick to his left, right in that place is an angel from the orientation that the Jews would speak of left and right, on the south side, standing right there in that corner, all of a sudden he is startled by an angel. I remember there were other priests that perhaps had gone in with him, depending on if it was evening or morning sacrifice, but he's alone here as he offers this incense and is startled to see a, a body standing there next to him. Verse 12, <coughs> when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear, we can imagine. As old as Zechariah was, in fact, he had not seen it all. This was brand new for anyone. There there on the left side was this angel. He is gripped with fear. And I think that gives us a sense of the authenticity of the passage. The Jews weren't in the habit of finding an angel behind every tree and under every rock. This was something that caused great fear in Zechariah's heart. This was unusual. God is about to break the long silence. Salvation's plan had been activated once again. It reminds us of Samuel in the tabernacle before this whole temple complex was built. Remember the word of the Lord calling out to him, Samuel, Samuel. The word of the Lord, the text says, was rare in that day. The word of the Lord was very rare in this day. 400 years, four centuries of silence, and now an angel stands by Zechariah with a word. The dramatic pause is now about to end. It is time to announce the Messiah. Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now we've been here before, haven't we? Once again, God chooses an infertile woman to give birth to a major player in God's redemptive plan. God favors this approach, it would appear. Elizabeth has been chosen to give birth to John the Baptist as infertile Sarah gave birth to Isaac and infertile Rebekah gave birth to the patriarchs and infertile Hannah gave birth to Samuel. God is once again on the move. 
Like especially Abram and Sarai of old, Zechariah and Elizabeth will beget a son in their old age against the laws of nature. Now what is God doing here? Think about this. By announcing John's birth, God is demonstrating that he is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of the world and is working to send, in fact, his Messiah. There can be no question in anyone's mind that Zechariah and Elizabeth are not going to have children. Everyone knows that. God chooses this this couple in this unique situation and says they are a perfect couple to show that I am in this in a unique way. The angel goes on to explain John's significance when he says, verse 14, He, this son that you will... Father, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Now, that would be pretty obvious, I think, on the surface of things. For the Jewish people, they'd be jumping up and down if if anyone had a child. But this joy will not merely result from the fact that Elizabeth and Zechariah have a baby, even in their old age. This baby will bring joy. Why? Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Great because of his unique mission and service. Great because of God's design for his life. And yes, great because of his unusual godliness. What a wonderful pronouncement that would be. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Notice verse 15, the remainder of the verse. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. This restriction on all alcohol was in that day a way of setting John aside as an ascetic, He was holy to God's calling and was thus to distinguish himself in that culture. I don't think this is probably the Nazaritic vow with which we're familiar. The reason being, nothing is said here about not cutting his hair. Nothing is said here about not touching a dead body. And it would seem then that this is a unique restriction from fermented drinks, symbolic of John's dedication to God, a condition to which the Holy Spirit would bear unique witness, verse 15. The Holy Spirit will fill him from birth or from the womb, depending on how we read the Greek text. Same Greek word, but depending on how it is understood. This connection between the Holy Spirit and alcohol is seen once again. Ephesians 5.18 bears that same connection out in a different context. But this man would be uniquely used and empowered by God, by the Holy Spirit, because of his unique ministry, verse 16 we read, many of the people of Israel will, be, will he bring back to the Lord their God. Like the Old Testament prophet, this prophet will issue a strong call to repentance. And unlike the Old Testament prophets, many of them, many people would heed this prophet's voice. Verse 17, here is the heart of the whole revelation. Catch this, if you catch nothing, this is the point. Here's John, verse 17. He will go on before the Lord... In the spirit and power of Elijah. This takes us back to Malachi 5. Let's 4, rather, verse 5. Let's go back to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Positioned there, I think, providentially for good reason. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. The last prophetic word, preparing the way for for Messiah, is Malachi 4 and verse 5, which says, See... I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Elijah will come. There will be spiritual revival. Or Israel will be struck. That's the word that was sounded before the four centuries of silence. Get ready for Elijah to come. Now, Elijah's been dead for many, many years. But there's a person who will come in the spirit of Elijah, and the angel now connects Old Testament to New, bridging the gap of this last prophetic word. Elijah will come, will bring fathers and sons together, what does he say, verse 17? He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, is this any wonder that he says this next, verse 17? To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Obviously, coming in the spirit of Elijah and turning the hearts of fathers to children is Malachi. 
That's the prophecy. Here is the forerunner of the Messiah. Verse 17 says, At the beginning He will go on before the Lord. He will prepare the path of the Lord. He will be the one who announces, Ladies and gentlemen, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, has come. He's the announcer. A man of faith, of courage, a spirit-empowered force for God's name. And so we'll follow his ministry of drawing the fathers to the children. I think apparently in light of Malachi 4, this means that John's message of righteousness will transform families. Where there is sin, families struggle. Sin and families don't mix. Wherever there is sin, a family is destroyed in some way to some degree. The result of John's message of righteousness and the Messiah's message will be the reconciliation of family members driven apart because of sin. That is a dramatic evidence of the influence of righteousness when families love one another and care for one another and are righteous before God. He will come, and that will be the result of this message. In fact, he goes on and expands beyond Malachi and says the disobedient will be turned to the wisdom of the righteous. Those that walk in disobedience to God, those that walk in moral depravity, those that fail the Lord will walk in the wisdom of obedience. That will be the result of this message. His message will be to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This will be John's role. To prepare people whose hearts are reconciled to God, thus reconciled to one another, and thus prepared to hear, Jesus has come. Messiah has come. A people prepared for this great new day in redemption's history. But while the angelic message is certainly wonderful news, it always proves a great challenge. When revelation comes, it's a challenge to faith. And Zechariah, at this moment of great climax in his priestly ministry, at this time of great joy in God's promises, wavers. His faith wavers, it would appear, at verse 18, when he says, he asks the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. How can this be? Now, there's no particular crime in wondering how a divine prophecy can possibly happen. In fact, Mary will ask the angel, I have never been with a man. How am I going to bear a child? And the angel offers no punishment. There's no discipline that's issued. Apparently, there is something in Zechariah's question that is doubtful and that evidences a lack of faith. He, just, he says, I don't understand this. That much we, we realize How is this biologically possible? But he seems to be doubting to some degree the power of God in all of this. He's a righteous man. He's a good man. But a good man whose faith wavers at this key moment. And so verse 19, here is what the angel says by way of answer. Are we getting this here? How, How is this possible? Here's what the angel says. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, period. It's quite a response, isn't it? End of subject. How can you be sure this will happen, Zechariah? Look me in the eye. I'm Gabriel. You're standing here in a model of God's throne room. You can't even go in to that holy of holies. You never will. I just came not just from behind the curtain in front of you in the earthly holy of holies. I have just come from the real thing. I'm Gabriel. I was dispatched by the God of the universe. That's how you know this will happen. And I've been sent by God to speak to you and to tell you this good news. You don't need any more proof than that. It will happen.
And I suppose, in a sense, then, the angel commissions Zechariah to make it happen and go home and have a child. And now, says the angel, before you do, you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at, this, at their proper time. Silent. The Greek word can mean deaf and or dumb, and the context will indicate that it means that, deaf and dumb. He is unable to speak, he is unable to hear. That is his apparent punishment, but it also very uniquely works into the whole scheme of things, in that the dramatic pause continues, in a sense, at this moment, where here comes old Zachariah shuffling out of the temple, and he can't talk. The problem, says Gabriel, is not with the power of God. The problem is your weak faith. My words will come true, and you are not going to talk until they do, and you're not going to hear until they do. This message will ring in your heart, and when you speak, is the understood meaning, you will proclaim this truth, that Messiah is coming, that your son will be the announcer. The people are waiting now when all of this is going on. Verse 21, people were waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. What's he doing in there? I'm sure there was a little bit of consternation for him. This was a place where a priest could very easily be struck dead for any act of presumption. What's he doing? What's going on? They discern that something is up. Verse 22, when he came out, he could not speak to them. So there he is. Remember the picture of the steps. He comes out onto the steps. And they're waiting for the blessing. And the guy can't utter a word. No blessing today. That got everyone's attention, didn't it? God has chosen this man and has disciplined him personally with this being dumb and unable to speak or hear. But it is also serving in God's providential plan to all those men that are lined up behind that rail and to all the Israelites and the Gentiles beyond in those massive courts. Word starts to go around. Something's happened. Did you hear the truth? God spoke. An angel came. It's been four centuries in it since we heard anything from God. He's come. He talked to Zechariah. There's an angelic message. And we, well, what is it? What did he say? We have no idea. The guy can't speak. I don't know if he wrote anything down or what. We don't have any indication. I mean, that would be the first thing I'd be asking for a something to write with and to explain. I don't know it, what he did or how he communicated it, but everybody's awake. They know that something is happening. God is on the move. But when he came out, he was not able to speak, verse 22. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. Had to be some interesting days. (laughs) Go on in your service and people are saying things to you and trying to work with you and keep trying to remember that you don't hear anything. (laughs) You can't talk to anybody. And it just keeps spreading the message out. He's probably figuring out how he's going to make this clear to his wife Elizabeth and how he's going to make the whole thing clear to his wife Elizabeth and what the whole thing involves and how this is all going to happen. It had to be some real interesting days. Old Zechariah heading back home, meeting his wife. But he returns to the hill country, and, verse 24, after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. After this, she became pregnant. Zechariah's on the page with God now. He trusts God, like Abraham and Sarai, and there is a child that is conceived in Elizabeth's womb We find the response there in verse 24 and 25 is twofold. First of all, she goes into seclusion for five months. Verse 24 and verse 25, she says, The Lord has done this for me (coughs) in these days. He has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Why she goes into seclusion, I've read no one that has any good idea. 
And if you ever do, let me know, because I'm very curious. I don't know what the purpose of that is. It perhaps could be part of the plan of silence, part of the plan of the dramatic pause. I don't know. On the other hand, it doesn't seem to fit, because... Up to that point in time, very likely no one would know that she was pregnant, or maybe the proximity of the people of that day, they would know she was pregnant. We, we don't know what the reason is and why she comes back into circulation at five months. No idea why, but it's just the fact of the matter, and perhaps someday we'll understand. What we do know is her prayer, and that is that in these days... He has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. We see there some of the pain that she has borne as a barren woman in Israel. My disgrace. She speaks of it. She had faced some tough times. Now, let me draw this together as we come to the end of this narrative. Just a couple of lines of thought. First of all, let's stop for a moment and think about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Little did they know in the midst of all of their suffering, little did they know as life passed them by that their suffering was just a dramatic pause. They had no clue. God knew from eternity past that this couple was going to beget the Son who would announce the coming of the Messiah of Israel. This new Elijah was to be their child. This was their destiny. And infertility was part of the plan. That was God's way of drawing special attention to the special mission and the special position of this child. Now how did he do that with Mary? Mary's on the other end of the scale and absolutely unique. There has been Abraham and Sarah who've had a child beyond the time when they're able to have a child Perhaps miraculously in the Genesis account, God uses that same schematic here to evidence John's position. What does he do with Mary? She has a child without intercourse. That's a new idea. And that will obviously get everybody's attention. But in both cases, God is getting our attention. He's saying this isn't a normal birth. This is something very unusual. It is with Mary. He gets our attention with virgin birth. It is with Elizabeth. He gets our attention by this old woman who has been barren throughout her life, bearing a child in her old age. And God is flashing the lights and saying, I have something to say. But as we think of their place in life and compare it with our own, I think that most of us, if not all of us, if we've lived long enough on this earth, would say that we have experienced some dramatic pauses in our life. There are times when there is suffering and there is futility and there is disappointment and heartache and plans that are crashed and God is silent. He doesn't say anything. We look around sometimes in a situation like Zechariah and Elizabeth at at things that everybody else seems to have. Something that's a tremendous blessing. And because we have been denied that blessing, we have a sense of its importance almost more than anyone else. It's so commonplace. But we don't have it. And we pray and we ask God and we beg of Him to change the circumstances. And it's silent. I think one thing that we are made aware of as we look at the life of this couple and so many others like them in Scripture is to remember in those times and to stop in a time like this as a church, as a body of people, praying now for each other in the midst of this assembly, praying that God would open our eyes and help us to see and let's stand and together, sitting here together, say, God is always sovereign. God is never on vacation. God is silent sometimes, but he's always in control. And he never makes a mistake. And he is infinite in his love for us. His divine plan includes these dramatic pauses which come before Grand initiatives 
on his part. I'm not saying that that means that in the suffering and in the silence of God in the midst of your particular trial that you are somehow going to find your your name in the pages of church history as everything writes itself and you have the experience of an Abraham or the experience of a Zechariah (coughs) and Elizabeth. I'm not saying that. But one thing I think we have to conclude what the Bible thinks is that God always brings those dramatic pauses to an end somewhere. It may not be in this life, but it will be in heaven. It may take until then, but what we must do is persevere in faith. And when we get to heaven's shores, if God is still silent on the suffering He's still silent on why we do not have or experience what so many others experience, it seems to us. If He's never given us a word as to why, when we enter into His presence in heaven, there will burst upon the scene and knowledge, and it will all make sense. I tell you, when Zechariah and Elizabeth have this child and they see the development of this child, and they come to perceive where they stand in the whole frame of earthly history, I am convinced there was not a day of earthly life that they ever doubted the plan of God or ever second-guessed the plan of God then. And if that day doesn't hit you in this life because God remains silent, you know that you will join them throughout eternity, and we will never doubt the wisdom of God. Never. A day is coming when everything will make sense. So let me make it very simple and say, what does it boil down to? It boils down to us demanding of God that He makes sense of it now. That He makes sense of it by taking it away. That He makes sense of it by showing us the purpose of our suffering. Showing us why we didn't have the success or the experience or the circumstance that someone else had. I want to know now. And in the frustration of not knowing now why, we get frustrated with the silence of God, which means we get frustrated with God. And that never leads us down a good path. What we must do is trust. And what we must do is look long to the future revelation of heaven, if not before, to know why and to see his grand purposes in it all. But what are God's grand purposes in the context of the passage that we are studying? The dramatic pause had come to an end for John and Elizabeth, or will as the first chapter plays out. It's set. It's certain. But what is God doing in the big picture? For Israel and for the people of this earth, the dramatic pause is also over. God moves to set forth a man to announce the Messiah's coming. A man that will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is John, John the baptizer. He is coming. God is working. And this one will announce Messiah has come. For this grand privilege, John has been chosen. A light shining out of darkness and crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. Messiah has come. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we are awed by your great plans. And it's so easy for us to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and to realize that you had such a great plan for them and we can see it all from a divine perspective in your word and we rejoice with them and we are thrilled with what happened there. But God, that's people who lived 2,000 years ago and it really doesn't change our life as much as it ought to simply know that you have done this. So we thank you for that, and that certainly is 
part of our growth and understanding. But Father, I pray for our church. I pray for those particularly who suffer, who lack some of the things that it seems that so many enjoy. And God, it's for us that I pray that we will understand that you are the God of dramatic pauses at times in history and at times in our histories. There are times when it doesn't make sense to us. I pray for faith. As Jesus taught us, all we need is faith like the grain of mustard seed. But I pray, God, that we will evidence that faith through obedience to you. And then in that different sense of the word, that we will have great faith to trust that whatever falls apart around us, whatever we lack, is part of your design. Though we cannot understand it all now, we will. There is a day when we will. And I pray, Lord, then that we would walk forward and from here as a people challenged to faith, challenged to look at the silences from your throne and to realize you are not on vacation and you are not disinterested. But I pray, God, that we would find in you and our knowledge of you our greatest joy and our greatest privilege and delight and not simply in the circumstances of this world. I pray for your people and I ask that you will be doing that work in our hearts that we might stabilize and grow and develop and mature in our faith. God, how we do thank you and we pause as we back away from this great passage. and We thank you for the unique way in which you design the coming of the Savior and preparations for his coming. Lord, how we thank you for this and pray by your grace that we might carry this gospel message to others and announce it as a message of joy and good news and forgiveness as it was from the beginning that it would be on our lips as the church of Jesus Christ, a people that you have called to be your own, turning us from disobedience to wisdom, reconciling us in our relationships with others because we have been reconciled to you through the death of this Messiah and his resurrection power. We are rich in Christ. We thank you for it and pray that we'd live like it. If there is one among us that knows you not as Savior, I pray that they would see that this is a message of great joy. And I pray that they would embrace you, our Lord and our God, as the source of all goodness and power and wisdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.